The following message, entitled, Bread in the Desert, Part 12 of the series, I Am, the Book of John, was given by Stephen Altrogi on the 22nd of January, 2012, at Sovereign Grace Church of Indiana, Pennsylvania. To learn more about our church, please visit sgcindianapa.org. If you could please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. We're in the middle of our series in the book of John called I Am. And we're going to be in John 6, 1 through 15. And as Bob mentioned during the announcements uh, several weeks ago, I guess it was about two weeks ago now, we had our first men's breakfast. And for the breakfast, we were anticipating somewhere between 100 and 150 guys. I don't know how many actually showed up, but we were expecting somewhere between 100 to 150 guys, and Bob was doing a lot of the planning for the breakfast, and he knew that it would be a big endeavor to feed that many hungry, big-boned, meat-loving guys. And so he, he, we knew that we had to get a lot of food, so he got... 30 dozen eggs, 400 pieces of bacon, 300 sausage patties, 200 hash browns, 15 loaves of bread, uh, gallons and gallons of coffee, and he purchased a defibrillator in case anyone went into (laughs) cardiac arrest at the breakfast. And uh, the guys arrived at 6.30 in the morning, and when I got there, I got there right about 9, the guys arrived at 6.30 to cook, and when I got there, it was... Uh, it was amazing. There was this like this river of glorious artery-clogging artery grease just pouring out of the kitchen. The sausage, in particular, it was incredible. I didn't even have to really chew it. I could just swallow it. There was so much grease on it. It was unbelievable. And uh, when the breakfast was over, I, t- I said to Bob, I said, Bob, I thought you did a great job organizing the breakfast because it seemed like to me. It seemed like everybody just had a great time. We were laughing. We were guzzling coffee. We were talking about beards. And we just ate so much grease, I felt like I needed to shower afterwards. But it was just a fantastic time. And the breakfast was a testimony to Bob's organizational skills. Bob's good at organizing people and bringing people together to do things. And so this breakfast showed me that Bob has some skills when it comes to organizing people. And this morning, we're going to be reading in John 6 about another meal. And it's a meal on a much bigger scale than what this breakfast was. This breakfast took a lot of work by a lot of people. We're going to see a much bigger meal. And we're going to see something about Jesus in this meal. Hopefully, as we read this, we're going to see the power and the glory and the majesty and the generosity of Jesus in this familiar passage about Jesus feeding the 5,000. So let's, let's look at Luke, I mean, uh, John 6, chat, verse 1. We're going to read this together. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following Him because they saw the signs that He was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there He sat down with His disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up His eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward Him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread 
so that these people may eat. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you would speak to us and that you would show us yourself through your word. Lord, would you please work powerfully in our lives this morning as we see Jesus and as we read this familiar story. Let us see more of Jesus. Lord, I I pray You would even disrupt our comfortable lives, Lord, with more of You, so that we would know You more and love You more and and follow You more. Thank You, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we read this passage, it puts us, the reader, it plops us down right into the middle of this impossible situation. That's the the first part of this scene is it paints a picture. John, as he writes this, he wants to paint a picture for us of an absolutely impossible situation. So look at verse 1 and 2. It says, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So the way this scene gets said is that Jesus and his disciples had gone across the Sea of Galilee and they were probably, what they were probably trying to do was get some rest. They were trying to get away from these crowds that would not leave them alone. And the way that this passage is worded in the original Greek language is that it, it, it paints this picture of crowds that kept following him as they kept observing all that he was doing and they kept coming after him. And it's it's this picture of a needy, demanding crowd who only follows Jesus because of the signs that he's doing. And just picture a mass, a giant mass of people. A giant mass of poor, needy, demanding people who are, in a sense, they're chasing after Jesus, continually asking him to do things for them. It's, it's almost, I, I start to get irritated at the crowd just as I think about the crowd. And they just won't leave Jesus alone. And then in verses 3 and 4 it says, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. 
Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And in these verses it tells us that as Jesus, he was across the lake, across the Sea of Galilee, and then he goes up and he, he sits, seems to paint this picture of Jesus sort of sitting on the side of the mountain, of this mountain, and a crowd coming to him. And if you read in the book of Luke, this is, the, this is the only story, the only miracle that appears in all four of the Gospels. And if you read Luke's account of the Gospel, of this story, it says that Jesus welcomed the crowd. And he spoke to them of the kingdom of God. And he healed their diseases. And I love this picture of Jesus. Because the crowd wouldn't leave him alone. The crowd wouldn't give him space. They won't let him rest. And they keep demanding from him. They keep asking from him. They keep pestering him. And if it was me, if I had been there, and I'm sure that the disciples felt like this, if it had been me, I would have told the crowd to get lost. I would have said, could you please leave me and my disciples alone for five minutes so we can get them rest, so we can chill for a little bit and eat a TV dinner and just hang out? Can you just give us some space? Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't tell the crowd to get lost. He doesn't tell them to take a hike. Instead, Jesus is full of compassion. And he doesn't roll his eyes at them. He doesn't give one of those disgusted, I can't believe these people kind of sighs. He doesn't say, these are the most ridiculous people in the world. Why won't they just leave me alone? Instead, it says in Luke that he welcomed the crowd. And I can just imagine Jesus going among the people and shaking people's hands and smiling and giving hugs and just welcoming people to himself. And I love that picture of Jesus because even though the crowd is needy, even though they are demanding, even though they won't leave him alone, Jesus doesn't turn anyone away. And the King of Kings makes himself a servant. Isn't that amazing? Jesus, the King of Kings, who had every right to rest and every right to have servants attending him, he makes himself a servant to this group, this group of needy people, and he doesn't ask anything in return. He just serves them. He becomes a servant to the lowest people. Even when he is tired, even when he's exhausted, even when he can't get away from them. And this is what our God is like. This just blows my mind, that God would serve. He's full of compassion, he's full of mercy, he's full of affection for needy, broken people. And he welcomes us in our weakness. Aren't you glad that God welcomes us in our weakness and He doesn't reject us in our weakness. He doesn't tell us to suck it up. He doesn't tell us to buckle down and get our lives together. And I think that this is one of the strengths of this church. I'm so grateful for this church and the way that you guys welcome people and invite people in and reach out to people. And I just want this to encourage us to be more like that. And I would love it if, if people said that this church is a place where anyone can come no matter how no matter how much their life is together or no, no matter how messed up their life is. And this is a place where they can come and they can feel welcomed by people. And you're already doing that. But let me just, let's, let's let this passage encourage us to do it more. Because I think sometimes we can be tempted, I can be tempted to want to serve people who can somehow repay me in some way. And so maybe it's just I like hanging out with someone and so, yeah, if they need help moving, sure, I'll help you move because we're friends and 
yeah, I like hanging out, and maybe you'll invite me over to watch a football game, or maybe, you know, whatever. I'll, I'll serve you because I like being around you, but Jesus serves people who can't give him anything. Jesus doesn't serve people who can repay him. He serves people who, they've got nothing to offer, except their neediness, and Jesus still meets them in that neediness. And so I just want to be like that. I want to be a person who just serves without any thought of, what am I going to get out of this? Because that's what Jesus is like. Let's reach out to those who aren't like us and who, they may feel helpless. Let's reach out to them because Christ reached out to us when we were helpless, didn't he? He reached out to us when we were helpless. Let's be like that. And in verse 4 we're told, it was the time of the Passover. It says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. The Passover, it was a really important Jewish holiday. This was a time when the Jews were feeling very patriotic. And I, think, I don't think, I read several commentators who said, our 4th of July celebrations here in the United States where we go out in our yard and sit on lawn chairs and roast hot dogs and shoot stuff, that doesn't compare, we may think we're patriotic, that doesn't compare to the patriotism that the Jewish people would have felt around this time because Passover was when they celebrated the fact that God had delivered them as a people out of slavery from Egypt. And so they were remembering this incredible deliverance that God had done and that God had done through Moses. Moses was a deliverer. And so during this time, the the Jewish people, they were under the Roman rule. And I can imagine a lot of them thinking, man, I can't wait for the time when another deliverer comes. When another deliverer who's going to set us free from these Roman people, I can't wait for a deliverer like that, like Moses, to come and set us free and rescue us. They needed someone and they wanted someone to come and destroy the Roman rule. And so that's going to play into what we see at the end of this passage. They needed a deliverer. And in verses 5 and 6 we read about Jesus lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him. Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. This is a large crowd coming at Jesus. On Sundays, we have somewhere between four and 500 people. This was probably about 20,000. It could be as many as 20,000 people coming to Jesus. It's this massive sea of faces spread out before him. I don't know if you've ever been down to the... It used to be called the Post-Cazette Pavilion. and It's like Niagara Pavilion or something like that. But down in Pittsburgh, they have this pavilion where there's lawn seats. And during concerts, you can turn around and you can just see this spread of people, this massive spread of people. And I can imagine that being sort of what it was like with Jesus. He looks out, sees a massive sea of people coming to him. And they had been with him all day. They were hungry. They had been listening to him. They had been healed by him. This was an all-day experience for them. And they were out in a remote place. And there were men and women and little kids, up to 20,000 people. And it's just a huge crowd, huge. Thousands and thousands of people packed on top of each other. 
and I wondered, I was trying to imagine what it would be like, and I wondered as, as if, as it got toward the end of the day, if Jesus could hear little kids saying things like, I'm hungry, Mom, when are we going to eat? What's for dinner? And him being aware of that. And so he turns to one of his disciples, as he's looking out at the crowd, he turns to one of his disciples named Philip, and he says, Philip, where are we going to get enough bread for all these people? Some people think Philip was from this area, from the area of Bethsaida, and some people think that Jesus asked Philip because Philip was from the area, like he might know like a, a local joint where they could get some food for all 20,000 people. And so it's, Jesus is like, hey, Philip, you're from this area. Where can we get enough food? Where can we get enough bread for all these people? And I can imagine Philip turning and looking at Jesus and be like, that's a good one, Jesus. I like it. It's a joke, right? I get it. That was funny that, you know, the big crowd and you want us to feed all the people. I get it. Good one. Good one. I really like that. And then Jesus saying, I'm, I'm serious, Philip. We're going to do this. We're going to feed all these people. Now, where are we going to get the bread? And in verse 6, it gives us an interesting insight into what Jesus was up to. Look down at verse 6. It says, He said this, Jesus said this, to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. Jesus, he already knows exactly what he's going to do. This isn't like, this is... This isn't like Jesus has no idea what's going to happen. He's like, oh my goodness, 20,000 people. Where are we going to get enough bread for all these people? Jesus knows what he's going to do. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He's not worried one little bit about the situation, but he wants to test Philip. He wants to test him. He wants to see how well Philip really understands him. Jesus wants to see how well his disciples know him, how well they know his character, and whether or not they trust in him. And so Jesus puts his disciples and all these people into this impossible situation. He has plopped them right into the middle of an impossible situation so that he can show them more about himself. He already knows what he's going to do. And so he has put them into this situation so he can show himself more to his disciples, and there's times when God puts us right into the middle of impossible situations. And the reason he does this is to test our confidence in him. I think sometimes we think, oh, God is just testing me. And in one sense, I think that's true, but what God is doing is he's testing how well we trust him. And he's, trust, he's, he's testing our confidence in his abilities. And God's, God leads us through trials so that He can test the strength of our faith in Him. And it's because God loves us as children. Because we are God's children in Christ, He wants our confidence to be in Him. He wants us to depend on Him. He wants us to know that He is 100% trustworthy all the time. And so there's times when God He kicks the supports out of other things that we lean on. So maybe He kicks out the support of our finances that we would trust in, or he kicks out the support of our friends, or he kicks out the support even of our health, or our sleep, or our parent, or any other. There can be so many situations where God, because he loves us, and he wants us to know that we can trust him, he'll remove all the supports. 
And he'll put us in a situation where we are forced to cling to him and depend on him and trust in him and hope in him only. Turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. This is a really helpful scripture to remember when you are in the middle of a trial. It says in James 1, 2 and 3, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith, it does something. It's not pointless. God isn't into pointless tests. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. God wants us to be steadfast, steady, not easily shaken Christians whose only hope is in Him. That's what He wants for us. He doesn't want us to be dependent on things other than Him. So He wants us to be able to say, in the middle of a trial, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I don't know when this trial is going to end. I can't see it. I can't see the end and I can't see the answer. But I know, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that God is good, that God is trustworthy, that God will bring me through it. I can't see the end, but I know that God's going to be with me through it all the way. That's what God wants for us. He wants us to have this simple faith in Him where we don't have to be able to see everything to trust Him. So this morning, I just want to ask, has God put you into a difficult trial? Do you feel like your faith is being pulled and stretched and pushed and tested and wrenched in all sorts of different ways? God's put you there. And I know this is so hard to see. I don't say this lightly. God's put you there because He loves you. You're in the middle of that trial because God loves you and He wants you to learn to trust in Him and in His character and in His love for you and in His faithfulness and in His goodness. And He puts us in impossible situations so that we can learn to lean only on Him. And cast our cares only on Him. And trust only in Him. He wants to give you more of Himself. In the middle of your trial, God wants to give you more of Himself. He wants you to experience Him in a way that you couldn't experience Him any other way. Doesn't that put a little bit of new perspective on your trials? God wants to give you more of Himself in the middle of it. Because He already knows what He's going to do. He knows it. He knows the beginning from the end. He has no doubts about what's going to happen. It's not like he looks down on your situation and is like, oh man, I did not see that one coming. He knows. There's a quote by Charles Spurgeon that I love. It says this. It is strange, Charles Spurgeon said this, it is strange that when God gives his children mercies, they generally set their hearts more on the mercies than on the giver of them. But when the night comes and he sweeps all the mercies away, then at once they each say, Now, my God, I have nothing to sing of but thee. I must come to thee and to thee only. Sometimes God sweeps away the mercies in our life so that we say, God, I have nothing to come to but you. And he does that because he loves us. And Jesus, he put his disciples in this impossible situation because he wanted to test them and strengthen them. He wanted to strengthen their faith in him. 
And he wanted to use this situation to reveal more about who he is. Unfortunately, though, Philip and the disciples didn't do well on the test. They didn't understand the identity of Jesus. They didn't understand his power. They didn't know. Well, they should have known, but they didn't believe what he was capable of. And so when Philip, or when Jesus asked Philip where he would get the bread, he said to Jesus, he said in verse 7, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. A denarii was one day's wage. So essentially Philip was saying, Jesus, if we had eight months worth of salary, so if you, have, if you make 60 grand a year or whatever, if you, eight months of that, that wouldn't buy enough, Jesus, to just get a little bit. We couldn't even give everybody a swallow of food. Not even a bite if we had eight months worth of salary. You see all these people. Where are we going to get that kind of money? He looks, what Philip does is he looks at the circumstances right in front of him, and then his faith is shaped by those circumstances. Isn't that what always happens to us? We look at what is right in front of us, we look at the circumstances, and then we let our faith in God be shaped by the circumstances instead of by his character, God's character, and what we know of his character, instead of by his word. We let our circumstances shape our faith rather than let God shape our faith. And a commentator named William Hendrickson, he says this, and this is really insightful. He says, talking about the disciples, he says they all calculated but failed to exercise faith. What he means is they looked out at the crowd and they calculated what would need to happen for them to get enough bread. But they didn't exercise any faith in Jesus. And that's exactly what I do. Isn't that what you do when you face a difficult situation? The first thing you do is you begin calculating how the answer is going to come. And so, for example, when my finances are tight, the first thing I usually do is I start to run through like the mental budget. And I think, okay, if I, okay I'm going to cut a little spending here. I'm going to save a little here. If I get paid here, the bill goes through here first of the month, carry the one. I think I should be okay. I calculate first. And then maybe I might just remember to pray. And it's not wrong to calculate. That's not what I'm saying at all. Not wrong to calculate. Not wrong to set up a budget. That's good. Probably wise. But the question should be, is our first solution in the face of any problem to calculate the solution or to exercise faith in God? They all, the disciples all calculated. They didn't exercise faith. What's our first instinct? Is it to calculate the solution? Or is it to run to Jesus and to run in faith to Jesus and say, Lord, I don't have the calculations available right now, but I'm trusting in you and in who you are and in your character. Do we run to Christ at the first sign of trouble or are we like the disciples? And so often, I am much more like the disciples. Calculate first and maybe exercise faith later. And it's just easier. I'm not sure why it is, but for some reason, at least for me, it's, it's easier to place faith in the calculation than in Jesus. I don't know why that is, but it's like if I get something concrete in my head and I can see maybe how this will work out, it's easier for me to trust in that than to trust in the Son of God who rules the universe and who provides for all my needs. It's easier to do that, to look at the calculation, the, the stupid calculation I have right in front of me that's not going to come true. It's easier to look at that than to say, God, I trust in you. 
and to place my faith in my Father who cares for me. So let me just ask this morning, what situation are you more tempted to calculate than exercise faith? What situation is in front of you or in your life that you are more tempted to try and work out a solution on your own? It's not wrong to try and think through solutions, but you're more tempted to rely on your own solutions than on God. Because God wants us to be dependent on Him, to rely on Him, to trust wholly in Him, instead of our own stupid calculations. That's what Philip did. He trusted in what he could see. And so Philip says to Jesus, essentially, Jesus, we could work for eight months and not have enough money to get this food. You must be crazy to think we're going to get enough bread to feed all these people. And then, as if to highlight just how ridiculously impossible this situation is, look at verses 8 and 9. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? It's like Andrew, after hearing this conversation, he's gone out into the crowd and tried to scrounge around. And, hey, does anybody by chance, did anybody bring food? Maybe he's thinking, if we can gather our resources and divide and conquer and provide, we can split up what we have so everybody can get enough food. And after all that, he comes back and says, well, here's what I came up with. Five loaves of bread and two fish. Not really going to help us, is it? And these loaves of bread and fish, they weren't like the Walmart econo-size loaves and fish, which are designed to feed large numbers of people. These were, the loaves would have been little barley loaves that would have been like a little pancake. And the fish would have been something like sardines or herring that is used just to put on top of it to flavor it. This is one little kid's lunch. It's not designed to feed more than one person, let alone 20,000 people. Now, saying all that, let me ask you, does this remind you of any other situation in the Bible? Masses of people in a deserted area with no food. Does it sound like anything? It sounds to me like the Israelites in the desert. When they were stuck with Moses in the desert and they had no food and Moses had to go to God and he had to say, God, would you please provide for your people? And God did provide. But here's the thing. Moses didn't do the providing, did he? God did the providing. God was the one who made manna come from heaven and who gave the people of Israel meat. God God did it. Moses did not have the power or the resources. And Moses was one of the greatest deliverers in the history of Israel And he couldn't provide, God had to provide. And so the question we should be asking is, how is Jesus going to respond to this? Is he going to be like Moses and is he going to go to God and and ask God to provide? Let's see what Jesus does. And that brings us to the second part of the passage, the impossible provision. Impossible situation followed by an impossible provision. So look down at verse 10. Jesus says to the people, He says to His disciples, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. So they counted all the men, about 5,000. That's why it could have been as many as 20,000 people, probably somewhere between ten and 15,000. It's still a huge crowd. And then in verse 11 it says this, this. See, this is where we can miss exactly what happened. This is one verse. And yet, in one verse, the most astonishing, incredible thing happens. And it talks about it like it's sort of matter of fact. Like, yeah, and then this happened. 
Verse 11 says, Jesus then took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. We have this tiny verse, and in one verse, it's absolutely mind-blowing. Jesus takes these five little loaves. I wish I could see this. What the heck did this look like? He's got this little loaf of barley bread, and he rips it. And then he rips it again. And then he rips it again. And he rips it again. And he rips it again. I, how did this happen? Like, I'm wondering, did the, was the bread like sort of regenerating itself? What were the fish... I don't know how this happened, but Jesus keeps giving it to the disciples and they keep passing it out and passing it out and it doesn't stop. How long did this take? At what point did people start to realize, wait a second, something's going on here. He had five loaves 25 minutes ago and he still has five loaves. How long does it take to feed 20,000 people? A long time, I would guess. And Jesus keeps going. And it's not like Jesus just gave each person a little smidgen of food, like, and a bite for you, and a little piece for you, and a bite for you. Jesus blows it out of the water. It says every person has as much as they want. 20,000 people. This is a buffet feeding 20,000 people. This was a gigantic amount of food. Jesus isn't stingy when He does miracles. Part of the reason that John, when he writes the book of John, John always emphasizes how extreme Jesus' miracles are. He doesn't want there to be any doubt about, well, maybe it was a miracle, but maybe he just somehow did a little sleight of hand. This is no sleight of hand. This is 20,000 people being fed by a little meal. And when Moses was in the desert, he had to ask God for food and for bread. He couldn't create the food himself. He didn't have the power or the the resources necessary. But Jesus, this is, this is part of what we're supposed to see, Jesus is infinitely greater. Jesus did what no one else could do. Jesus did what the greatest, one of the greatest religious people in the history of Israel could not do. He himself, out of his own power, provided food for 20,000 people. He did, did you notice it says he gave thanks for the food? It does not say that he asked God to do something incredible. He just did it himself. He does have the power. He does have the creative power. I just love this picture of Jesus with this creative, overflowing power and this generosity where He just keeps giving and giving to people. And there is no doubt that He is doing it. And He's the Son of God. And He's able to do what Moses couldn't and provide food in the desert. He provides what Moses could not. He feeds a massive crowd of people on his own. And this is meant to show us the identity of Jesus. This is supposed this is John's way of taking Jesus' identity and shoving it in our face and saying, "Who do you think this guy is?" Jesus does what only God can do. Just as God provided for the people in the desert of Israel, for the people of Israel in the desert, Jesus does the same thing. And it wasn't a little amount. There was leftovers. Lots of leftovers. Twelve baskets full of leftovers. In verse 12 it says, and when they had eaten their fill, I just, I like to picture everybody just sort of like laying on their back, bloated by all the bread and fish they had eaten. When they had eaten their fill and no one could jam another piece in their mouth. 
Jesus had just kept going. He didn't worry about providing too much food. There was 12 wicker baskets full of leftovers. They gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. 12 baskets. I can imagine the disciples just going around. Has anybody got leftovers? Yeah, we got some over here. Yeah, we got a lot over here. Just filling up basket after basket. And do you see the generosity of Jesus? Jesus is generous. Jesus is overflowing with generosity. Sometimes we think that God is harsh and stingy. God is not stingy. God loves to bless. God loves to give. Don't believe the lie of Satan that God is not generous. God is generous and Jesus demonstrates that. Jesus shows shows us that God is far more generous than you can imagine. And I believe that we're almost always going to underestimate God's generosity. You're always, I'm always going to be tempted not to overestimate how generous God is, but to underestimate how generous God is. I ask, I pray lame, weak prayers because I underestimate how generous God might be. I think the Lord wants to stir our faith to ask big things of God because He's generous. He doesn't hold back. And He loves to give good gifts. He's lavish. In this passage, it forces all of us to ask a question. Who is Jesus? Who is He? What sort of person, what sort of man can spontaneously provide out of nowhere for 20,000 people? You can't ignore this question. You can't get away from it. You can't escape it. It's in your face. And you have to come face to face with Jesus and decide. You, each person must decide who is Jesus Christ. See, that's the main point of this passage is John wants us to ask, what kind of man can do this sort of thing? See, this really happened. This is not a fairy tale. This isn't supposed to be an inspirational story to help us learn to share our bread with other people and to be generous and kind. This happened! Jesus did it! So who is He? You can't ignore the question. The disciples saw it happen. And they were willing to die because they believed it happened, and they believed in the Son of God. It was no fairy tale to them. 20,000 people saw it happen. And so, I just want to press this question on you. Who is Jesus Christ? You can't go through your life ignoring Him and saying He's just a good guy. He's either the Son of God, or He somehow is the most incredible liar in the face of the world. Don't believe that he's just a good person. And John wants us to ask that question. Who is Jesus and what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about this guy who provides food for 20,000 people? Don't ignore it. Don't push it out of your mind. Don't say you're going to think about it later. If Jesus is the Son of God, he deserves our life. And if he's not, he deserves our scorn. Don't ignore Jesus. And the crowd saw it happen. They were there. When the the crowd saw what Jesus did, look down at verse 14. When they saw what Jesus did, when the people saw the sign that He had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. When the people spoke of the prophet, what they were referring to was in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Moses, the great leader of Israel, the great prophet of Israel, Moses said that someone else would come who would be far greater. It says in Deuteronomy 18.15, 
the Lord, Moses spoke. He said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And so when the people see what Jesus did, they say, this has got to be the guy Moses was talking about. This has to be the prophet that Moses said was going to come. He's here. Look what he just did. They were expecting another prophet like Moses who would arise and deliver the people of Israel. Just like Moses delivered the people from the Egyptians. And they were right. Jesus was that prophet. He was the one that they were expecting. He was the one God sent to rescue them, but they didn't understand what He was going to be like. They didn't understand what Jesus was really like. They thought, most of them probably thought that this Jesus was going to be a great political deliverer, a king who would take care of His people. He had just taken care of 20,000 people. He would drive the Romans out. He would be a king like no one else had seen. And when the people saw all that Jesus could do for them, how He provided bread for them, how He healed them, when they saw what Jesus could do for them, they wanted to make Him a king. They loved what He did for them. And they didn't understand, though, what kind of king He was. They didn't understand that He was establishing a heavenly kingdom where He would rescue people from their sins. That was the deliverance He was bringing. Deliverance from sin. And Jesus was not going to let himself be pushed around and told what kind of king he was going to be. So in verse 15 it says this, Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus, he wouldn't have anything to do with it. He withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And my guess is that some of you may be like that crowd. You like to tag along with Jesus because of what he can give you. Maybe you come to church because it makes you feel like a better person. And don't misunderstand, I love that you all come to church, but we don't come to church to meet with Jesus so we feel like better people. Or maybe you like the friends that you get to have because of following Jesus. Or maybe you come just because you've always come to church and that's what you're comfortable doing. But Jesus isn't your king. He's not the one who rules your life. And let me just tell you, Jesus will not allow himself to be put in a box. He doesn't exist to make me and you feel like good people. That's not why Jesus came. He doesn't exist so that we can live a comfortable life. He doesn't exist so that he can be just a little bit of religion that we mix in with the rest of our life. Jesus is king of everything, of the world, of the universe. This is reality. Jesus is the King of kings and He demands that every person come to Him and submit their life to Him and ask Him for the forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus can be one of two things. He can be everything for you or He can be nothing. You are either Jesus's, You are either for Jesus or an enemy of Jesus. There is no in-between. And so let me please appeal to you. Don't Try to just mix in Jesus with a, a little bit of Jesus with the rest of your life. If you're going to try to do that, you're better off not putting any Jesus in your life. Jesus wants to have all of you, all of me. He wants our whole life, our everything to be from Him. And so that's what the crowd was missing. They thought they just could have a little bit of Jesus. And He came to save you. That's what He came for. And He came to save me from my sins. 
and to give me forgiveness and eternal life. Isn't that better than having just food? He came to give us eternal life and to give us true spiritual life. That's what He wants to give you. And He wants to give it to you for free. And all you have to do is ask Him for it. And so if you've never made Jesus your King, can I please appeal to you, don't keep just messing around with Jesus. Come to Him and say, Jesus, please forgive me for living my, my life my way. I want to live life your way. I want you to be my king, and I want you to forgive my sins. I want you to be the center of my world. And if you'll do that, you'll have eternal life. You'll be a part of the kingdom of God. You'll be a son of the living God or a daughter of the living God. Isn't that awesome? That's what Jesus provides. Because you are in an impossible situation. You can't escape from your sins. You can't. You cannot. You will not escape from your sins. You won't be able to get over the power of your sin, and you won't be able to escape the judgment of God for sins. But Jesus delivers us from impossible situations. He wants to deliver you. He puts us in those situations so He can rescue us. And for those of us who have made Jesus King, I think this passage should send us out into this week determined to rely only on Jesus. And so just as we go out of here, can I just send you out with the question, is there anything you're relying on more than Jesus. And just because God loves us, He wants to help us kick those supports out from under us so that we can rely on Him, so that He can show Himself to us as being trustworthy, so that we can trust Him. So what I want to do now is I want to pray. I want to ask the worship team to come up. I want to pray and ask that God would help us do this. So why don't we stand together and let's pray together. Lord, I thank You for sending Jesus, the Son of God, the King of kings, to die on the cross in our place and rise again so that we could be rescued from impossible situations, mainly so we could be rescued from our sins. Thank You, Jesus. Lord, I pray this week, Jesus, help us depend only on You trust only in You, rest only in You, place our confidence only in You, strip away the, the things that we would depend on beside You and that we would hope in other than You. Lord, I pray for those who right now are in the midst of, a intent, of an intense trial. Lord, strengthen them now. Be with them now. Meet them now. Lord, You want to support them. Thank You, Father. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.